0: And welcome to Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. On this week's show, we bring you the latest on talks between the club and players over a temporary wage cut. We'll look back on Jose Mourinho's first sacking in 2007 and see your questions and talk loans. All that to come on this edition of Straight Out of Cobham. Yes, welcome in friends to our Cathedral of Chelsea Chatter. I'm Matt Davis Adams. Joining me from their palatial palaces are the athletics three men in the know as regards Chelsea Football Club. First up, he's redefining the concept of a breezy podcast introduction. It's Simon Johnson. Hello there. No, six out of ten for that this week Simon It's, not oh been, it's been a bit perkier recently uh, You are right into deadline though, So we'll forgive you for that uh, Also on board after returning from holiday last week With what can only be described as a rubbish suntan It's Dominic Fifield Oh the cheek I've never
1: looked so rosy <laughs>
0: uh, And rounding off our starting line up The man who never misses a show He's been doing keepy ups on the roof of his building all weekend It's only Liam to me
2: Just trying to keep myself sharp for this what's your record keep you up wise oh i I don't count i don't count i only right um, so that
0: means it's either hundreds or like six
2: (laughs) (laughs) it's it's with a tiny ball as well um which is just good for skill development i find
0: (laughs) 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 all right well that sounds like a a long read um, that i'm going to dive into soon Big balls versus little balls, keepy-ups, no pun intended. Uh, Right, now we know who's who, let's crack on with the continually brief latest news section. So still no football to report on for obvious reasons, but we should have a chat about the discussion taking place between the club and the first team squad with regards to a temporary pay cut during the hiatus from football because of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, the Premier League have suggested a 30% reduction in players' salaries, but reports claim the Chelsea squad are hoping to reduce that. Um, Liam, the figure that I've seen is 10% they want to cut it by. Uh, is it kind of likely that, that the club and the players will meet somewhere in the middle between the 30 and the 10, or, or do you think one or the other party will get their way?
2: Well, I think first of all, it, I think it would have been much easier for not just Chelsea, but for for all of the other clubs if there had been some sort of Premier League-wide agreement on this. Uh, the fact that there hasn't been makes it a lot more complicated and, and potentially can make these discussions a lot more fraught. But I think what, we, what we've seen over the last few weeks is as the gravity of this situation has become clear and as um, all of Chelsea's community outreach um, has, has become more and more public, I think it's changed the the nature of the conversation about whether the players um, should should be taking pay cuts, and I I expect there to be some sort of compromise reached. Yes, um, I think there there has to be a recognition of the fact that probably Chelsea are in less of a vulnerable state than some Premier League clubs because they do have Abramovich, but at the same time, you know the Chelsea, like any other club at this point, are not making money. They're, no one is actually. You know, doing well out of this, it's about, I think, um, everyone being prepared to take a hit in order to navigate what is an extremely testing time, not just for football, but for the wider world.
0: Tom, you've got a, a more wide ranging brief than, than Liam and Simon. In terms of the clubs that you cover, it's a great point that Liam makes about the Premier League not really doing the clubs a favour by, by not sort of setting something in stone. Is that some, a view that's shared across the, the London Premier League clubs that they would have liked a sort of definitive directive on this so they're not left negotiating with their own employees and potentially sort of stirring up some ill feeling? I think it would have made life as as Liam says it would
1: have made life easier had there been a, 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 a rule almost set out set in stone from above but that's not really how the premier league works um and I, I I get the impression that actually clubs would probably prefer to do specific deals with their players rather than feel as if some some rule has been imposed upon them if you like um, yes, it would have made life simpler. They could have just gone straight to the players and said, "Look, this is what is happening. Yeah, you have to comply." But I think I think most of these clubs. I mean, the, the situations are so different with each one. I mean, even within London, um, you know, some clubs with massive, massive wage bills and 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 no no income at all to speak of, and and also no, as 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 Liam says, no big backers either behind behind the scenes uh, I mean, if you extend that further I mean clubs like Bournemouth are, you know they have, they've got big wage bills for they need that, that that match day revenues coming in really to sustain them as well and these it's so particular with each club that I don't think a uh, a sort of wide-ranging rule would have worked from the Premier League. It's also not really how the Premier League has ever really worked. It's always been about the 20 individual clubs coming to some kind of consensus and, and they would prefer on something like this to, to go individually, I think.
0: Simon, I'm interested in the role of César Azpilicueta in, in the particular case of Chelsea. Obviously, he's the club captain, therefore will be representing the players. Um, obviously, not something that he ever thought he'd have a, a big part in. Do you, do you think, knowing the kind of character that he is, that he will be leading this or will he be reluctant to do it? Will, will he be taking on board ideas from his teammates or say, no, this is what we should be doing? I, th- I think he's sort of the perfect man to have in this position on, on both
3: camps, um, in that he's got a very good relationship, very respected within the club, um, so he can certainly um, talk to Marina sky on a, on a very good footing, but he's also respected by his teammates, um, and that's why I think, perhaps opposed to, perhaps elsewhere, you get the impression that talks are quite amicable, it, it's everyone sort of keen to to find an agreement on this, and that there aren't going to be too many dissenting voices. So as Azpilicuato, a very popular figure among the dressing room, is just the right man for the job.
0: Yeah, I think all of us have probably interviewed him at one time or another and he's a very sort of affable, amiable kind of guy. So um, hopefully for, for his and the club's sake, they can come to a mutually beneficial arrangement on that. We'll have more on that story as it develops on The Athletic. Now, remember, the football season may be on hold, but The Athletic is still home to 400 of the best sports writers in the business. And they're still hard at work telling unique, engaging and informative stories. The Athletic can keep you connected to the team and the sport you love. Sign up now for a 90-day free trial to see for yourself. Just go to theathletic.com slash Pod for a 90-day free trial. OK, next up, we're talking loans, current and past. Good news for subscribers to The Athletic who are also fans of Symbiosis. Liam, Dom and Simon have all published pieces on the site which have a similar theme. Uh, Simon's crowned Mason Mount as Chelsea's Young Player of the Year, whilst Liam has profiled Connor Gallagher and Dom has interviewed Michael Hector, so I thought it'd be a good way for us to chat about how Chelsea's attitude towards loan players has changed of late. Uh, Dom, your interview with Hector gave us some great insight into what it was like for a member of the Chelsea loan army in the not-too-distant past. Uh, players shipped here, there and everywhere at a moment's notice As Hector himself puts it, he could be dispatched absolutely anywhere in the last 48 hours of the transfer window. He joined in good faith as a Chelsea fan, but but is it fair to say that he was bought to prepare him for a future sale at a profit as much as he was thinking this is somebody who could be a potential first teamer for us?
1: Well. That's a really interesting question. I think if you, if I asked him that, and he was adamant that he joined Chelsea because he thought and believed and had been led to believe that he would have a chance of getting into that Chelsea team, that okay, he was loaned straight back to Reading, um, where initially he was working under Steve Clark, who had, had recommended him to Chelsea in the first place, and he spent that the rest of that season, which would have been 2015-16, back at his, you know, his his former club, Reading. But in the summer of 2016, when Antonio Conte had just come in at Chelsea, he genuinely thought he had a chance of getting into the Chelsea first team setup. Um, he was included on the pre-season tours. They went to Austria. They played games in Germany. They went to the States. Uh, he he made his two Chelsea appearances as a substitute in Austria as well. I think, um, and he had his he had, the shirt number was there. He, he was going to be number 30. He he had it. It was readily made up, and then. A few days before the closure of that transfer window, Conte called him in and said, "Actually, we prefer you to get uh, more game time in an, at an elite level, um, developing uh, as a player, and then we'll, we'll reassess you in 2017." So he went potted off to Eintracht Frankfurt and spent a year in the Bundesliga, which wasn't the easiest of his loan spells by any stretch of the imagination and of course when he came back he came back to a very different Chelsea they were the the champions but Conte's relationship with the ball was suddenly strained he was hoping for a better calibre of of ready made player I think ready for the Champions League campaign that would follow in 2017 and that simply wasn't a place for Michael Hector in in that setup at all so he then spent the next two years out on loan and I think at that point he realised that there was no future for him at Chelsea um, and it got to the stage, you know, in the summer just just gone, where he needed, he needed to, into the last year of his contract. He needed to put down some roots. Uh, he 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 had he's done 17 clubs so far in his career, including loan spells. Um, he's 27 now. Uh, Reading used to loan him out to long league clubs back in the day, and he, he's he's been here, there, and everywhere, uh, and needed just a a a chance to to establish himself at one club so he would he would claim that he had a chance now look Chelsea might say something very different because that was a strange summer in the market back in in 2015 um Jose Mourinho again Chelsea champions um Papi Gilaboggi territory Michael Hector um it wasn't a happy time in in, in trans- Chelsea's transfer policy it was confused it was muddled it, it it was almost saving money here and and doing everything they could to annoy Mourinho there it was it was a, a a very odd period in the in the in the club's um recent history and michael emanalo was the man who was making those phone calls so it would be interesting to hear from him as to whether he thought that michael hector would go on to play a, a, a you know a big part at, at chelsea i suspect he would say he would
0: so that was start of the 2015-16 season. Now, during that campaign, Mason Mount was helping the Chelsea youth team to win the FA Youth Cup and the UEFA Youth League. Now, Simon, you've profiled how his current season's gone. But fair to say that even back then in, in 15-16, he was a player that Chelsea had earmarked as a future first teamer rather than somebody to be uh, fattened up for the market via a series of seemingly unconnected loans like Hector was yes
3: I mean he was he was highly rated for sure but he he still had to go off and and prove he was the real deal like as, as Chelsea have brought through a number of um, talented youth players uh, through their academy but have in in subsequent loans not gone and made the impression uh, required to prove that they are good enough for the first team squad I mean Josh McEachran as uh, a classic example of that. Um so Mason Mount still had to go out and prove himself. Um Vitesse Arnhem, he, his first loan, um, actually didn't start um on fire there either. Um and there were a few concerns at the time, but he he ended up being, I think, their their player of the season. Then then it all came down to um a bit of fortune really. Um that Frank Lampard decided to um get into management, Uh, Mason Mount um, has gone on record to say that Frank Lampard was a hero of his and and whilst he had a number of clubs um, pursuing him for a loan that summer, once he met Frank Lampard uh, there was no doubt in his mind of of who he wanted to play for, so he went to join Frank at Derby and of course played regularly under Frank at Derby, uh, played very well uh, when he was fit Um, and then of course Frank Lampard becomes manager of Chelsea, so There was an element of um, right place, right time uh, about Mason Mount, but given the opportunity this season, again, he's had to go on and take it. And I know that uh, my piece sort of generated a lot of debate because there is a huge competition uh, when it comes to talking about young player of the year at Chelsea this season because Frank has used more young players than than any Chelsea manager has in the Abramovich era. Um, But for me whilst he has had the inevitable dips in form at times, the fact that Frank Lampard has picked him more than any Chelsea player and used him more than any other Chelsea player in the Premier League, I think that says it all. Um, it's kind of like, well, Frank Lampard's given his vote um, and I'm just going along for the ride. And um, and yeah, I just think Mason Mount, his performances against Tottenham home and away, even the last game against Everton, um, just showed that he's a real... Really fine player, and the the encouraging thing for Chelsea fans is that the best is very much uh, still to come.
0: Yeah, and you could say the same about um, Conor Gallagher, who Liam's written about for the Athletic. Um, Liam, this is a player who, who I think may have caught the club slightly by surprise with how rapid his development's been in in what is his first season out on loan, first at Charlton, now Swansea. Again, though, it's, it's long been hoped that he can make the step up to first team level uh, for Chelsea. He amounts similar sort of players is the is the progress of Mount a reason for, for Gallagher to, to be optimistic or is that just somebody else who's standing in his way?
2: Well, it's a really interesting um, dilemma, isn't it, for, for him and I think for Frank Lampard when he's trying to to make his decisions about his squad for next season. Um, when you're talking about Gallagher within the context of the, the lone army, I think he sits kind of between someone like Hector and someone like Mount. He certainly wasn't necessarily earmarked for for first team consideration certainly not this soon um, and as you say he, he's taken I think Chelsea and even himself um, I, I mean I interviewed him earlier in the year and I think he was even surprised at how quickly he started at Charlton and, and the momentum he managed to maintain then going to Swansea um, he's already at the stage where I know that he feels um, ready to play Premier League football next season and I think there's a you know there's a consideration at Chelsea that that he could be ready for Premier League football as soon as next season. So it makes the the conversation more complicated because midfield is probably the area of Lampard's squad that is the most well stocked with with quality, both in terms of experience and with young players like Mount. I know that in terms of the profile of player Gallagher probably sees himself more like Ruben Loftus Cheek than someone like Mount, who's Mount's kind of a hybrid, isn't he? He's kind of like a number eight, number ten, can also play wide. Gallagher's very much a kind of um box to box midfielder. Um similar to Lampard actually in his in his outlook in that he's always looking to get into the box and score. So I think it's very feasible that they could play in the same team. But the question is who else is in that team and how many midfielders can you fit into it? And um I think if Chelsea went to Gallagher and said, We'll send you on loan elsewhere in the Premier League and then a year from now you'll be ready to come in for us. Uh that would be something I think that he would be very interested in. But there has to be a, a kind of plan for him to to move into the Chelsea squad at some stage because his his dream is still to play for Chelsea, but above and beyond everything I think he sees himself as a, as a Premier League player sooner rather than later
0: Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see if he can make the kind of progress that, that Mount has done in terms of his Chelsea career uh, Hector doing brilliantly at Fulham but uh, could be forgiven for wishing he'd joined Chelsea a few years later than he did OK, next up we're firing up the DeLorean as we head back to 2007
3: I'm European champion so I'm not one of of the bottle I'm a, I think I'm a
2: special one
0: so, inspired by the joint read on Andre Shevchenko's time at Chelsea and Simon's interview with Steve Sidwell, we thought we'd have a look back at how things unravel for Jose Mourinho, leading to his first sacking by Chelsea in 2007. Uh, the two players we mentioned played a part inadvertently in Mourinho's departure. We'll start with Shevchenko. Uh, despite insistence to the contrary at the time, this very much uh, an Abramovich signing rather than a Mourinho one, right, Don? Yeah, he he appeared on
1: a list as Simon makes out makes makes the point in this piece, but he wasn't high up on Mourinho's list. He was very much <laughs> high up on Abramovich's, and and, and the, the the courting, as Peter Kenyon confirmed in a in a very very hesitant and nervous uh, radio interview that he he conducted uh, in two thousand and seven I think it was, um, the courting of 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 Shevchenko occurred a lot earlier than than. Than uh, Mourinho would would have liked. I mean, we're talking way back, um, 2005, 2006 time. I mean, he, he, he was a, he was a friend of of Abramovich's by the time that he signed. Um, he was a, a a player that Abramovich idolised. That he he loved to watch. He'd seen him do great things at Milan. He thought he was buying that player when he spent 30 million pounds on him. Um, and as Simon m- makes the point very well in the piece, he he wasn't buying that player. He was buying a player that was physically broken by the time that he he arrived in England, almost, and just wasn't up to the the rigors and the the pace and the you know the fanaticism of the of the Premier League. Um, and we we never got to see the see the best of him, and he and he became a political pawn on on that basis, really, where when every time he dropped him, it was to make a point. It was to to show that the board and Abramovich that he he wanted a different calibre of striker brought in possibly to play alongside Didier Dropper at the time, um, and, and I, I think when you ever look whenever you look back at Shevchenko's time in in England, it, it
0: has this sort of political undercurrent to it as a result. Simon, is is this one of the first and, and maybe actually one of the only instances of, of Abramovich being this hands on in terms of players that he wanted to bring in, or, or was it kind of common during the early years? I
3: think in terms of where it was really particularly driven by the owner, then you'd sort of say Shevchenko's up there, Torres would have been another one. Um, and I think that's in keeping with sort of Abramovich a sort of wanting um, Chelsea to play a, a certain way, exciting sort of form of football. Also the the pursuit of the Champions League. Um, he, he sort of really hoped that, that these guys who were prolific um at the at the clubs that Chelsea bought them from would bring that goal tally to Chelsea and and help them win the Champions League As it turned out it was basically Didier Drogba and and uh, and, and the old guard that that got Chelsea over the line. But I mean Abramovich has always um had quite a keen interest um in all of the players that Chelsea is signing because inevitably that's the level of communication um, he's the one that's that's writing the checks for, um, most of the time. But in terms of players that he particularly had an interest in, then yes, uh, Shevchenko and Torres are the ones that I can think of that he really wanted to, to bring personally to the club.
0: Liam, lastly on Shevchenko, there's a lot in the piece about him kind of being in and out when it came to coming to training. He wasn't hanging around. He, he was more keen on, on getting off to Wentworth to play to play golf near where he lived. <laughs> he... he does he take some of the blame? Obviously, injuries were a huge part in the fact it didn't work out. But but should he have done a bit more to integrate himself into the club, or should the club and the management have done a bit more to, to make him feel a part of things?
2: Well, I find this a difficult one because I remember, you know, the the quotes from Mikhail Jonobi that you know that Simon got for the piece were saying that no one could really fault Shevchenko's commitment actually in training. It was, it was the fact that maybe he didn't stay late afterwards or he didn't socialise with the players around um, around the kind of day-to-day and he didn't necessarily assimilate into the whole club um, as much as he maybe could have done. So I guess in that sense, he could have made a bigger effort to become part of the fabric of Chelsea and maybe that would have helped him play better on the pitch. But fundamentally, I think he he came to England too late and he came to england when his body was not capable of doing the kind of things that he was doing when he was you know world player of the year and winning champions leagues with with ac milan it was a it was a tragedy of timing much in the way that the, the torres signing was a few years later and so i think it's maybe less about shevchenko's attitude and more just about the circumstances of the deal when it happened and the the kind of reduced circumstances that he was operating in by the time that he came to to the Premier League.
3: I think think the key is, I'll just sort of quickly jump in there, I think the key is as well, is that Shevchenko's problems continued after Mourinho left. So if he was some kind of political pawn, which he was, um, and Mourinho clearly didn't, didn't really want him at the club despite publicly saying he did but even after Mourinho had gone and Avram Grant who was very much sort of a Rich's man um even he couldn't sort of bring out the best in Shevchenko but there there was still there was still the odd flash um of of what he used to be and I, and I was at White Hot Lane when he scored the goal that in the piece we refer to with his left foot and and I remember just sort of sitting there that is what Chelsea paid thirty point eight million pounds for because it was an absolutely phenomenal strike that few strikers in the world could produce. Unfortunately for Chelsea, it was sort of one of one of only a few key goals that he went on to score.
1: The other the other weird thing about Shevchenko's relationship with Chelsea is that he, he may not have fitted in in the in the dressing room. He may not have assimilated himself in there with those big personalities and those big characters in the playing staff, but he did with the hierarchy. I mean, that's, we still see him at Stamford Bridge now. I mean, he goes and sits in Marina's box and, or in Roman's box up, a, up in the West Stand. And, and he's, it's almost like he, he had more in common with the, the hierarchy of the club that he joined than, than his fellow players. Um, maybe that, I don't know, maybe that stems from his time in Italy. I don't know. But, but it, it certainly stemmed from a, from a friendship that, that he cultivated with, with the owner over the years
0: if we go from, from Shevchenko then, at his peak, one of Europe's elite footballers, probably wouldn't say quite the same about Steve Sidwell. Simon, so, mean, you've interviewed him <laughs> for The Athletic. It's uh, it's a really interesting piece. One thing that struck me, you know, we've spoken about Shevchenko, Mourinho, they well, we could take him or leave him. Sidwell was actually taken to Mourinho's house to kind of woo him and tell him what he'd be doing next season. So this feels like one that, uh, that Jose was on board for.
3: Yeah, um, I, I think basically... Um... Steve Sidwell was it was it was a it was a a good punt you know why why not um he was a he was a free transfer because he decided to let his uh, contract run out at Reading um, and you have to remember that Michael Balak um had suffered a a serious ankle injury if memory serves you right which would rule him out till Christmas and and there was also the the homegrown quota to to worry about um, in terms of uh, European football etc so. It, it was basically why not? Why not see? Um, he was paid fifty grand a week, and 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 Sidwell has made it very clear that he could have earned a lot more money elsewhere, particularly West Ham. I think West Ham, who stayed up on the on the final day of the season, came in late and and basically intimated they'd pay. Um, the impression I got is more than a hundred grand a week. Um, wow! So so um, Sidwell could have earned a, f- a phenomenal amount um, at West Ham, but as he says, although although some of the readers um, question him about this uh, at the bottom of the piece, um, he says that him and his family are Chelsea fans. Um, so he he thought, well, I just can't turn this down. this this is my once in a lifetime opportunity for to play for the club I support. And as it turned out, it, it, he didn't play that much, but I think um, in, in reflection he has no no regrets at all. He went on to obviously play for other clubs, moved on to Aston Villa the the end of that season um, but I think um, for him it was like it was a bit of a dream really it was almost like he was he was getting to play the role that, that many fans want to play and sort of like that that sort of dream of getting a chance to to put on the shirt that, uh, that of the club you support and as he talked about going on that pre-season tour he, he just was looking around at all the legends in front of him and he was so shy that, that he thought oh I'm just going to go sit next to the kit man because I don't know what to say to the likes of Didier Drogba and so on. But um, yeah, for him, it's certainly still a happy memory, even though he didn't actually win anything or play that often.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure he's got a framed Chelsea shirt up in his uh, in his house with the number nine on the back, lest we forget. A couple of questions from listeners on this, this subject of Mourinho's first exit. Josh underscore OMJ writes, What happened in the summer before that season that made Chelsea reduce the influence of the manager on transfers so drastically, especially after the successful prior window? Um, Liam, was this anything to do with with Avram Grant sort of hanging around as an advisor and then more to Abramovich? Or was it just not giving the manager as much power as he previously had?
2: Well, I think it was... Partly Avram, um, but he wasn't only he wasn't the only advisor that Abramovich had at that time. I mean, you've got Pete Devisa as well, who, who's been in the picture for a long time. Gus Hiddink was a friend of Abramovich long before he he finally came in um, as caretaker manager. So there there have always been people in Abramovich's ear giving him football advice, and I think you had um, just gradually those tensions coming to the surface. I mean, it's important to remember that. Mourinho even at this stage of his career was something of a political animal. He he he'd he'd left his his first big job at Benfica um under a political cloud when the when the president changed. Um so he he clearly wasn't afraid to 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 fight those kind of battles um at high levels when when he saw or when he perceived that his his own influence might have been undermined. So I think in the end it was it was probably a confluence of Abramovich being a fairly young football owner, um, making a lot of the mistakes that new football owners make in terms of overreaching into into football decisions and Mourinho being the kind of personality that he is, not wanting to give any any extra ground. And and when you when you add these these kind of peripheral characters into the mix like Avram. Um, and some of the other people that were in Abramovich's ear at the time, I think it only serves to muddy the waters further. And by the time Mourinho eventually left in t- 2007, the the divorce felt inevitable, and it had felt inevitable for quite some time, which is quite incredible when you think about the fact that we weren't actually that far removed time-wise from his biggest successes.
0: Uh, on that inevitable divorce then, Dom, Monsieur underscore T asks if there was a final straw that you're able to put uh, the breakdown in the relationship down to was there was there one thing or was it just the accumulation of the kind of public moanings, the Shevchenko signing and and the tailing off of results to some extent. Look,
1: the final straw was probably the, th- the three match winless run. Um, as, as daft as that sounds for a, a manager whose whose career had been so glittering at the club, um, but that just you know all those tensions were there and they had been there for some time. You could. Take them back to the previous season, to you know Mourinho wanting a a centre half bought in January and and getting Alex, who Chelsea already part owned, but Mourinho just didn't rate. Um, He he could put it down to that summer's transfer market Um, when, although although Sidwell was courted at at Mourinho's house, Simon makes the point that he was given the number nine shirt for probably for a reason um you know pizarro had joined that summer on a free transfer as well and, and and didn't get that shirt and basically because Mourinho wanted a bigger name he wanted someone a better striker recruited that 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 summer and it was again another weird weird window um you know sidwell Aim, pizarro all joining for nothing Meluda 13 million pounds was it was the extent of chelsea's investment really but it was all those tensions were there um I went on that. I went on that Chelsea preseason tour to the states uh, with Sid World's One way, sitting with the kit man, um, and Mourinho gave us an audience in uh, UCLA and made out that he was mellow Mourinho. That was his new soundbite. Was, he was no longer the special one. He was going to be mellow Mourinho in the season ahead. And he he claimed all was rosy. Everything was brilliant. All the political issues that had been with the hierarchy from the previous season were behind them. The, the new guys brought in were. Brilliant players, fantastic prices they'd spent. Everything was rosy. Everything was brilliant. It was, we're going we're gonna to win everything. We're going to go further in the Champions League than we ever done before. A couple of months later, um, it just felt as if it had run its course. Uh, there was that, that weird atmosphere in the Rosenberg game on a, when, bizarrely, Shevchenko actually scored, I think, in a one-all draw in the Champions League and the sight of Abramovich walking across, over the pitch post match from his box in the in the west end into the into the home area into the dressing room area on the east end. um he just thought something something's up here something something's going on and sure enough the following day uh, we had confirmation that that uh, that Jose was was off um and initially that he was basically the so story was he was resigning, but obviously there had been a breakdown completely in the relationship and they were just going their separate ways at vast expense to, to Chelsea.
0: Finally then, Simon, if we look back on um, on the departure, it was actually best for all concerned, given that Chelsea went on to, to come really close to winning the Champions League and the Premier League that season and, and Mourinho, of course, moved on to Inter where he had such brilliant success. Was it just the right time for for both parties to part ways?
3: Yeah, it probably was, um, because uh, even though Mourinho left, um, he left that core in the dressing room, uh, which was pretty much able to manage itself, uh, certainly for that season, as has been uh, pretty much well documented that whilst Avram Grant took over, it was the players that, that really continued what Mourinho had started with, with Steve Clark as, as Assistant Coach um, taking training, and they they almost uh, won the Premier League again, and of course just narrowly missed out on the uh, on the Champions League to Manchester United. And but they still managed to kick on in, in subsequent years to win trophies whilst Mourinho was elsewhere. Uh, meanwhile, Mourinho was an absolute um, legend for for Inter Milan. Uh, won them Serie A, won them the Champions League, um, and was probably. Arguably, um, his greatest achievement was was with Inter Milan and, and beating that Barcelona side um, in the semi-final. So, um, yes, I, I would say with hindsight, at the time it didn't feel like it. It, it felt like um, the worst kind of divorce, certainly from a Chelsea fan's point of view. There was much mourning, much much wailing in the stands and, and actually in the dressing room, as Steve said, well, uh Referred to in the interview, and the players just sort of on the floor crying, etc. But um, I think in in the end, it was the it was the right move because things had become so toxic between Mourinho and and the board that uh, it needed Mourinho to go away really for for Chelsea to kick on and to win the trophies they did. But it also needed Mourinho to come back uh, as he did in 2014 and kickstart another good period of in Chelsea's history.
0: Yeah, of course, he did come back for that second spell. Get the feeling he probably won't return for a third, though. Okay, no cult hero this week. Just a clip of Dennis Wise giving a half-time team talk to an Indonesian under-17 team. Put him in that fucking row over there. You have my permission to put them two fuckers over there. He's got three fucking goals. Three goals. He disrespects you. You want to take, see if he does it now, the little flip flap and all the little name? You fucking it him. Yep. You make him know. Yep. Strange that he never made it as a manager. So, this Sunday, the Athletic will be hosting a Premier League Awards night. Our writers and podcast hosts have voted across a number of categories, and from 7 pm on Sunday, we'll be announcing the winners. Before then, make sure you listen to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast every day this week, where we'll be announcing the shortlist for various categories. We're starting on Tuesday with Young Player of the Year, that's followed on Wednesday by Underrated Player of the Year, and Thursday, our Team of the Year. Then on Friday, you can hear the shortlist for the main award, the Men's and Women's Players of the Season. So that's a new show every day this week, only on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast. And to find out the winners on Sunday night, make sure you subscribe and download the Athletic app. Remember, you can get a subscription to the Athletic right now for free. Go to theathletic.com slash Pod to take advantage of our 90-day free trial. Chaps, did anybody vote for a Chelsea player in any of the categories?
2: I had two Chelsea players in my young player of the year nominations. i will be interested to, to hear how many other people had.
0: I had two.
3: I had two okay. as well. I'm sure they're
0: the same two. Probably the two, same two. Yeah. <laughs> all for like young Victor player of the, was the year. One of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't believe that Michael Hector was one of yours, Don, but I'm guessing that they were all Mason Mount and Reece James or Mason Mount and Tammy. I Mason, Mount. Mason Tammy. Mount
2: and Tammy. Yeah. Reese James, I think, would have made mine, um, but didn't quite play enough Premier League games in the end because he had that ankle injury early on. And there there are actually some really good um, contenders for that Young Player of the Year award
0: around the league. I remember, 7 o'clock on Sunday is when they will be revealed. All right, before we say goodbye, uh, chaps, tell us what you've got up on The Athletic for people to read and what you're writing about this week. Liam, you first.
2: We are doing a big piece on Didier Drogba. Basically, a, a comprehensive look back at his his Chelsea career the from 2004 to the drama of 2012 and then the uh the, the glorious little mini sequel he had in in 2014-15 as well hopefully some stories in that piece that that people won't have heard before um and I, I'll also be writing my piece on um Chelsea's player of the year because Simon did a big piece on Mason for young player of the year in order to find out who I've picked you'll have to tune into the Athletic later this week though.
0: (laughs) Nice tease. Um, Simon, we've spoken about Torres and Shevchenko, Drogba saw both of them off and others. He's right up there in terms of the greatest strikers that the club's ever had, isn't
3: he? Absolutely. I mean, his uh, record in cup finals, his record at Wembley, his record against Arsenal and probably all Chelsea fans will basically say that goal and that penalty against Bayern Munich means... He's arguably the greatest striker. Um, he's not the most prolific um, in terms of um, Chelsea's all-time leading goal scorers, but he scored so many crucial goals, and he's very high up on that list, regardless. Um, so, yes, he he deserves the ultimate respect, the ultimate homage, which we hope to do justice to. And, and another team that he haunted on a regular basis is a subject of a of a piece I, I'm writing. Um, as well, which is Chelsea's rivalry with with Tottenham, um, and I put it out on a poll um, who Chelsea fans regard as their biggest rivals, knowing full well it <laughs> would finish top. But I just wanted to make sure you you can never assume things in in the journalist world. And um, so yes, yeah, so I'm writing a piece about Chelsea rivalry with Spurs, and more to the point,
0: explaining why. Good, look, looking forward to it. Don what's on? Uh, what's your new agenda this week?
1: I'm going to do a piece on another West London club, Queen's Park Rangers. Um, I'm going to look at the life and times of Niall Ranger, um, the ex-Newcastle forward, uh, who's had quite an interesting life. Um, Not always for good reasons. Um, And I'll help out. Very rarely Um, for good
0: reasons, I seem to recall. Very, very rarely. (laughs) He
1: did have a prolific spell at Swindon once. Eight goals in 13 games, I found out today. But yes, you're right. uh, He had a difficult time of it. And then, yeah, helping out Liam on the the Didier Dropper read.
0: Excellent. Looking forward to reading all of those. Well, my thanks as ever to Simon, to Liam and to Don, but mainly to you, listener. We'll catch up again same time, same place next week. Until then, bye for now.